revolution will not be televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village. Hi, this is Rick Allen. And I'm Leilani Albano. On Digital Village, we're bringing you stories about the Internet and technology and how they're shaping culture, along with every other aspect of our lives. The digital revolution is indeed awe-inspiring, but can also be used for nefarious purposes. We're here to help prevent some of those abuses. You can hear us archived on kpfk.org. And digitalvillage.org. So, on with the show. Hello, this is Rick Allen, and I am speaking with Dan Mervish, co-founder of the Slam Dance Film Festival, well-known director. He's won a lot of awards. He's been up for an Oscar, and he has a new film out. Hi, Dan. Hey, Rick. How are you doing? How was that for an, uh, for an opening? I liked up for an Oscar. I think that's a really great phrase. <laughs> yes, right. Okay, we can always edit cool. this. I know truth. I have a, uh, let me see, a who, how, where, not, and why questions. Now, who, Okay. Uh, that would be Richard Dixon. What, that would be 18 and a half, your film. My film. Where, the White House. Why, because certain things needed to be pointed out that have yet to be pointed out about that time during the Watergate period. And uh, how is the question I want to ask you, Dan? All right. Okay. I thought the where was going to be at Lenley's Theater starting May 27th, but that's, you know, Beautiful. we can get into that at the end. That yeah. is a, yeah, that, that'll be the where at. Yeah. Now, the how, of course, I've read the press kit, and I've read the production notes, the short version, which is pages long. No, I'm kidding. Um, but... <laughs> I I don't want to give anything away, so I want you to maybe explain how the heck you came up with this comic drama. (laughs) Well, if you recall, the last film I did was called Bernard and Huey, and that was written by the amazing Jules Pfeiffer. Um, Right. I was a Pulitzer Prize-winning cartoonist and screenwriter and everything. Um, well, the last day of that shoot was, happened to coincide with the 2016 presidential election. And then the next day I was going from, and we were shooting in New York, and I was driving out to Shelter Island, which is at the tip of Long Island, like a three-hour drive, um, to see Pfeiffer and to show him dailies. But, if, but inevitably we were talking about the election and Trump and comparisons to Nixon and, you know, and, and because he, Pfeiffer really won the Pulitzer for his cartoons about Nixon and Watergate. And so, you know, he was right. trying to say, well, we, we survived Nixon, you know, what could possibly go wrong in the next four years? <laughs> and then that night, I took the ferry over to Greenport, which is just over the Peconic Bay from Shelter Island at the tip of Long Island, and stayed with my buddy Terry, who owns the um, Silver Sands Motel, which is this amazing motel that his grandparents had built in the 50s and 60s. And, and Terry, had, who'd been running it for about a decade, had really kind of preserved the vintage look and feel, the neon sign, the bright turquoise, everything. And um, and he used it. It's a real working motel during the summer, but he used it for a lot of fashion shoots and uh, music videos, things like that. But no, but he said no one's ever shot a feature here. If you you know we're closed in the winter, if you come up with something, you know every the cast and crew can all stay out here. And I was like, 
well, that sounds pretty good. And he was actually with me talking to Pfeiffer. So we were like, hmm, we were just talking about Watergate and Nixon. This looks like 1974, and it's an amazing location. Let's shoot a movie. Um, and so that was kind of the birth of it. And then I teamed up with a writing partner, Daniel Moyer, and coincidentally his aunt and uncle owned a diner just down the street from uh, the um, – the Silver Sands, so then we had two locations, and, you know, if you're an indie filmmaker, two locations, you're like, let's make a movie. Now we have to. Yeah. <laughs> so, but then in doing the research, you know, because then it was like, well, hang on a second, how how do you set a Washington-based film in, um, <laughs> you know, in a seaside resort? So that took uh, some hoops to figure out, and, and really in doing the research came up, you know, figured out that the, during the Nixon White House, it wasn't just the Oval Office that had this voice-activated taping system. It was actually three or four different offices uh, in the White House complex had that taping system, and there really are tapes of Nixon listening to and fumbling around with the buttons of tape recorders while he's being taped by yet another tape recorder. Um, and so once I realized that, then it became plausible, which is really all you need for historical fiction, it's just something plausible, that somebody could have a tape of somebody listening to and then erasing the 18-and-a-half-minute gap tape. And so then it was about just coming up with a character, um, Connie, who's ultimately played by Willa Fitzgerald in the film, um, who's a White House transcriber who gets a hold of the tape of the missing 18-and-a-half-minute gap, who then wants to leak it to a reporter, and they decide to meet at this very secluded seaside motel, which we set in Maryland for the for the purpose of the movie. And then, of course, they run into uh, swingers, hippies, and nefarious forces out to get them. Beautiful wrap-up. Um, <laughs> and, and now I realize uh, what part the ferry ride took. Exactly. Yeah, that is the ferry that goes from Shelter Island to uh, to Greenport, and I was like, and you know, and just riding that ferry, I realized just visually it, it lent itself to some really cool shots. That's how we start in the movie. Well, and uh, my excuse for having you on, Dan, because <laughs> I've had we've uh, we've done interviews like this forever uh, since uh, Sundance yeah. started <laughs> that many years right. ago. And it, it was, uh, you've always, uh, had, like, cutting edge digital releases. I mean, it, you, you've broken so many great directors, Academy Award winners, and actors. And this, this was a little different in, in that it was you who should have had this film in Slamdance. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, we, you know, we shot the film during the pandemic, uh, which is a whole right. other story. We started shooting in March 3rd, 2020. What could possibly go wrong? And we, oh. we found out later that we were the last film shooting in North America. And so we, we were like, that's no good. And what does everyone else know that we don't know? So we shut down after 11 days with only about 80% of the film in the can and then took a six-month healthy hiatus or pandemic pause, went back and, and shot the rest of it in the last four days. And then by the time we were ready for festivals, for about a year, the film festival world had, had gone almost completely virtual. Um, every festival around the world had gone virtual. Right. And then they all thought that by fall of 21, you know, about nine months ago, everyone thought, oh, great, we're, you know, COVID will be behind us. We can have live festivals again. Well, not so much. Then Delta Surge happened. You know, then festivals were like, mm, yeah, maybe we should still do these hybridized versions. And so kind of by design and somewhat by luck, that was we decided to kind of launch the film in the fall, and we played like 10 festivals in like a two-and-a-half-month period really quickly, but all over the world in, in 
Brazil and in Spain and Canada and the, all over the U.S. We premiered at Woodstock. And I call those the trough festivals because they were in that trough between uh, the Delta surge and the Omicron surge. And, right. Uh, you know, and oh. so then, then because of Omicron, there was no – there was no Sundance, there was no slam dance. You know, they, they were virtual. They still happened, but, uh, you know, on a virtual basis. And then there was a new trough uh, of festivals that we went to in the spring between the Omicron surge and World War Three. So I thought, well, that's so then we went to, you know, Barbados and Manchester, England, and I won a Best Director Prize there, and, you know, great things. But anyway, but now we are doing a theatrical release um, starting at the end of May in theaters only. That's great. Now, let's dig a little deeper, if we can. As I was saying before, my excuse for having you on is not only um, because we've had you on forever, but because of ITT. Yeah, ITT. They, they were the Amazon of the 70s. I mean, they owned, <laughs> owned bread companies, um, yeah. Wonder Bread. If, uh-huh. You remember Wonder Bread? If, if you squeeze it real hard, it goes back to the dough state. <laughs> you can roll exactly. dough. Anyway, that's what we as kids did. Yeah. But how does, I mean, can you just give us a glimpse? We don't want to give too much away, although it's, you know, it, it, it's like a, a spoil alert. The ship hit an iceberg. Um, but uh <laughs> A lot of people are not uh, don't know about the tie-in with ITT and the National uh, Republican National Convention and Howard Hughes, right. etc. Yeah, and the interesting thing about Watergate because now we're getting on to the 50th anniversary of the of the original breaking, which was on uh, June 17th, um, is that people's memories of Watergate and of Nixon get really kind of condensed to just whatever was in all the president's men which is a fantastic movie and a fantastic mm-hmm. book, but it, it's actually just a really small slice of Nixon and all his scandals. And it, and it took a lot of research kind of going back and kind of recontextualizing and looking at headlines that most of the headlines for uh, leading up to that break-in were uh, the scandals about Nixon were about his relationship with ITT. ITT was this massive conglomerate, as you said, and they had been bribing to the tune of something like $400,000 the, the Republican National Con- Convention to move it from one city to another city. There were issues with ITT and the Justice Department because they were a monopoly, and so they were obviously the Justice Department was looking into them, and they were so... The, this was this was front page news on in every newspaper until Watergate became a bigger scandal, and then people kind of forgot about it. But even the day of the eighteen and a half minute gap, the day that Nixon and Haldeman are talking, which is three days after the the break in, half the conversation they're talking about ITT and what are they going to do about that scandal? Right. But then when you look back at it historically, then you realize that there's these bizarre connections too that. ITT, which was in all kinds of fields, including defense contractors and arming and aiming the bombs in Vietnam, um, also owned Continental Baking Company, which owned Wonder Bread. And and I don't know that people even at the time sort of made that connection, because if they had, it would have been really absurd that, that this vitamin-enriched uh, Wonder Bread, you know, is made by ITT. You know, you can't spell vitamin without Vietnam as we say in the movie. It was a great line. Um, but there really were, in the uh, fall of 73, the, the Weather Underground blew up the ITT building in New York, and, uh, you know, Spelikudi, uh, you know, had songs about ITT and, and, uh, and Africa, and it was, you know, they were sort of universally despised at the time uh, for all kinds of reasons. 
Um, and then there were all these kind of weird connections between Nixon and Howard Hughes, again, because of bribery. And there's speculation that that has a lot to do with why the break-in at the RNC even happened. Because that's a great thing creatively is that nobody knows the answers to a lot of these questions. To this day, nobody knows who erased the 18-and-a-half-minute gap, why it was erased, why that tape of all tapes was erased, because nothing else was erased or deleted, um, and even why did the burglars break into the Watergate? Nobody really has an answer to that. And by the way, that was the second time they broke in, not even the first time. Um, it was sort of this giant comedy of errors, and of course we all know the phrase, you know, the cover-up was worse than the crime, and, and right. it was. Well, and thank God for those radical hippies in your film to explain yeah. some of that to us. <laughs> I know. And, and it's some of the most absurd stuff in there, and yet, strangely enough, that's actually some of the truest things in the film, which is which is uh which is just goofy but and and you know in in trying to write a conspiracy theory that hippies would have at that time it was like oh my gosh this isn't this is this is all true stuff it doesn't it doesn't take much much conspiracy to make it I, true well i don't want to tease people with the amount of sex and violence in the film but uh, i have to oh we say, just got rated got rated pg13 yeah the way it's portrayed i, I mean i hate to <laughs> i hate to be the one to laugh at violence but you had me rolling over dan Oh, good. Well, it is a, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a comedy in parts. I mean, we, we've now shown it with enough audience that I can say, well, you know, a lot of people laugh at the movie or with the movie, hopefully, uh, not at the movie, right. which is, yeah, I mean, it is kind of a, a farce and a little bit of a romantic comedy in, 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 at times with a couple different couples. But yeah, uh, so laughing is good, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, yes. Uh, especially nowadays, we need it. Yeah. Uh, so you've won these awards. Come on, humble brag for us a little bit, Dan. I, w I won the Best Director Prize at the Manchester uh, Film Festival in England. That was our UK premiere. And we won the Upbringly Independent Prize, which is the, basically the top jury prize at the Tallgrass Film Festival in Wichita, and runner-up for the Audience Prize in Anchorage, and, you know, and, and, and a few others. It's here, like a, an award in, at the Rome International Film Festival, you know, and a few others. But just, honestly, just going to festivals is, is, is the prize, you know. I mean, just going to Sao Paulo and, and Spain, and, you know, some of these are, like, some of the top film festivals in the world and uh yeah. you know and and it was really you know in the middle of a pandemic you have to be really nimble about it too and say well look i can't go to this festival but my composer can get down to to sao paulo or i can't go to wichita but my cinematographer was there you know so she could go and accept the award there and so uh, uh, even tonight the annapolis film festival is doing a special screening of the film and my writing partner is is there, uh, you know, representing the film and doing the Q&A. And so that's the nice thing about doing, you know, as you know, I do a lot of crowdfunding and, and we have 400 backers from all over the world. And if I can't be at a festival or at a screening, we just get someone else, to, you know, from the cast or crew or, or, the, or the community, you know, to, to talk about it. Well, and, and that's another uh, thing I wanted to mention, Dan, was uh, – your crowdfunding efforts and how they have um, paid off. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we did some fun things on this one. Uh, you know, if, if people gave us, you know, this is now two or three years ago, if people gave us 
money, a certain amount of money, we would Photoshop their face into the famous Nixon Elvis photo, and um, <laughs> and that was uh, a lot of people got a kick out of that. And uh, and I, we also had uh, had an audio tape of Nixon thanking people for for money, uh, which was a real Nixon tape. And then I would just kind of insert their name here, um, but. Uh, yeah, but we haven't even talked about the cast in the film. That's, That's real my, That was going to be my next question. Sense. How did you get so many? Well, obviously, they're flocking to be in your films, but especially this bunch. Wow. Yeah. The the cast that you see are, includes uh, Willa Fitzgerald, who a lot of people just saw on, on Reacher, uh, John yeah. Garo, who, many, who Kelly Reichardt recommended to me after he did First Cow, uh, the amazing Emmy-winning Bonnie Curtis Hall, uh, Kathy Curtin, Sullivan Jones, who had just come off of Slave Play in on Broadway, um, and that Richard Kind. Oh my gosh! Uh, oh, Rich, last Rich, Bernard Rich, and oh perfect. Oh uh, yes. Uh, so he and then the great, voice and then the voice actors and then the voice actors. Absolutely. So we have uh, Ted Ramey as uh, General Al Haig. John Cryer as H.R. Haldeman, and, of course, Bruce Campbell, the Bruce Campbell, as Richard Nixon. Um, uh, Bruce and, and John kind of came on board first, because, honestly, if you're casting actors and you say, well, I just need you for a couple hours of voice performance, they're like, sure, fine, it's sometime in the future and post-production, you know, we'll do it then. But as it turned out, when we had that six-month hiatus when the pandemic hit, uh, we were like, you know what? All these actors are sitting around in their respective homes, which was kind of spread out around the country and, and the world. Ted Ramey was actually in Canada. We're like, why don't we do this on Zoom? Because it's instead of paying to fly people into a studio, which you couldn't do anyway, uh, we we basically did it as as Zoom calls, and which was great. It was in May of 2020. It was the actors were sitting around with nothing to do, and all of a sudden we could do, you know, essentially an 18 and a half minute radio play. Um, which was a lot of fun for for all of them and, and for us, and we could you know we could feel like we were being creative when everyone else was shut down, not doing anything. Um, so they were great, and the cast that we had on set were phenomenal, and and there's just wonderful chemistry among all of them. And, and I think part of it is because we were all living in this really cool vintage motel and kind of going through this together and. Willa had her dog with her, and, and we were kind of going through this, like, oh, my God, what's about to happen in the world, you know, together? Like, for all we knew, we were the last people we were ever going to see on Earth. <laughs> you know, uh, it, felt like yeah. the, it felt like the zombie apocalypse was coming, and, you know, you start looking at the gaffer and the key grip and saying, which one has meteor legs, you know? <laughs> Thankfully, though, product, we had product, product placement with Omaha Steaks, and so we had about $3,000 worth of steaks on set. And what happened was after we shut down, a third of our crew, about seven or eight of them, kind of the Brooklyn single types, they stayed at the Silver Sands for two more months. And actually our cinematographer, Elle Schneider, she stayed for, for six months um, because they, they didn't want to go back to New York and, and the hotel was empty so they could just stay there. So they survived on leftover Omaha steaks and product placement um, beer and coffee. Wow. Um, you know, thank God for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the film itself has a 70s feel. Uh, it, it mm. You know, it, it took a while for me to get that. I'm going, what is it about that? Ah, <laughs> it's got that 70, that mid-70s feel uh, for uh, yeah. that uh, once, once I got into the groove, I just totally went with it. Well, thanks. Yeah, and that was, you know, that was really the mandate that I had for everyone on the cast and crew from the writing down through post-production was, 
you know, we were only going to use creative techniques that could only have been done in 1974. So, in other words, there's no drone shots. There's no steady cams. Right. Steady cams came in in 1976. You know, the the editing is pretty much straight cuts. It wasn't completely straight cuts. I'm the editor. I know that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but for the and the music is all original bossa nova and tropicalia music uh that my amazing composer luis guerra came up with i wrote the lyrics we had them translated some of them in, into portuguese we had a great um uh, singer in who's brazilian but lives in la caro pieroto and she recorded some in la some in brazil we had these great horn players out of mexico city who were kind of stuck there because again musicians were sort of stuck around the world so yeah. Uh, we could get some amazing uh, collaborators to work on the, on the soundtrack. Uh, and by the way, the soundtrack just came out this week. It's available on iTunes and Spotify and wherever fine soundtracks are available. Cool. But yeah, so so all of it together, and then the, yeah, and the camera, and we use vintage lenses. Uh, you know, all of and of course the location. You know, and our production designer and our costume yeah. designer were amazing, and so. Uh, it, it all kind of came together with, yeah, as, as you say, this kind of look and feel of the 70s. It's a little hard to put your finger on what exactly we're doing, but, you know, Elle and I especially looked at a lot of early 70s films and, and late 60s films and, and, and we into a lot of music from the era. And, and we all, you know, everyone did our research. Um, Sarah Kogan, our costume designer, had, had collects vintage patterns, so she would have real patterns from the 70s and then, and then sew new clothes for the actors. Speaking of vintage, that tape recorder, uh, the uh, more yeah. I, I still, saw that huge I'm tape right recorder, the more I wondered how Rosemary, Rosemary, Rosemary would, how she could stretch from playing it to how you can record over it. It's mind-boggling. For the, and for those who don't remember, that was the big excuse that Nixon, the Nixon administration gave for the... 18 and a half minute gap is he blamed his secretary, he blamed Rosemary right. Woods, and then she did this, the prosecutor made her do this very public demonstration yes. of how she claimed to have accidentally deleted this, and, it, and it, it was called the Rosemary Stretch because her foot was on a pedal over here, her arm was way over there, and, I, and, and this was on the front page of Time and Newsweek and everyone yeah. around the country, and that was, it was like, there's no way this is true. You know, there's, Google, she's lying, that he's lying. Yeah. And, um, and I think that was really the pivotal turning point in the Watergate scandal. Like, it had been a slow burn for about a, a year and a half up until then. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden everybody saw that and they're like, oh, this guy's got to get impeached. You know, Republican and Democrats were all like, no, nah, this is, yeah. we really don't trust this guy anymore. Yeah. Very rapidly it led to impeachment hearings and then he resigned. Unlike uh, Trump, who only a couple of Republicans, <laughs> yeah. um, and that's the, and the, you know, and for me that was kind of the interesting thing about doing a period film is that it's a way to kind of reflect and comment on whatever is going on contemporaneous to to now, you know, and, and you know, because it's it's hard to make a film about Trump during the Trump administration, have it come out and still have people see it. So, so but if you make a Nixon yeah. film, it's always going to be relevant to someone somewhere. Somehow, you know, the Brazilians all thought it was. We were talking about Bolsonaro and the the the, the British ah. in Manchester. They they were all saying, "Oh yeah, this is just like Boris Johnson," you know, right? Uh, you know, with a goofy scandal and 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 the cover up being worse than the scandal. And so that's kind of the nice thing. And, and I think the reason these Watergate films and there's there's other ones coming out now, uh, Gaslit is on Stars. Yeah, HBO's got one coming out. 
um, you know, there's a reason they resonate is because it's, it's, it's a sort of epic scandal of hubris and incompetence and farce, you know, altogether. Yeah, but tr- Trump wanted to make sure he outdid all the corrupt presidents by uh, oh, yeah. not just yeah. having an 18-and-a-half-minute gap, but how about a seven-and-a-half-hour gap? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Boy, that <laughs> rang a bell. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's always a gap. And then, you know, with Kevin McCarthy, there's always a tape. Yeah. These guys can't they, – they're always taping themselves uh, one way or and, another. And testing um, and thinking it won't get out. Yeah, I know. And and the amazing thing about the Nixon tapes is that Nixon knew he had the tape recording system, and he very frequently would forget that he had a voice-activated taping system in his own Oval Office. And yet, and then there's other tapes where he clearly knows that he's being taped, but the other person doesn't know. And um, it's, it's really fascinating to listen to those tapes and kind of see the push and pull going on there. And the real and and uh, and the quote real unquote eighteen and a half minute gap will be revealed. That's all I have to say. Yes, exactly, exactly. And it's funny as can be. Yeah, thanks. Dan Murbish, director of eighteen and a half. Yeah, May twenty seventh, uh, Friday, May twenty seventh. We're opening in select cities, and those select cities are L.A. Uh, at Lemley's, mainly at Lemley's Monica, but at a few other specific Lemley sites during the week with special screenings. Okay. And then also in New York City in uh, and Omaha, obviously. Ah, um, good old <laughs> Omaha. At, yeah, but then the week later, June 3rd, that's when it's really opening um, much wider. We're actually doing a premiere in D.C. on June 1st, and then it's opening in D.C. and Phoenix and Colorado and and a lot of other places um, on June 3rd and, and, and different places throughout the month of June. Great. Wonderful. Dan, thanks uh, thanks again for being on, and, and thanks for, for uh, all your creative input and output. Uh, well, wish thanks you for having me on. As yeah. well as can be with, uh, with the film. Um, thank you. I know that, uh, uh, that uh, 18 and a half has already met and far exceeded the Academy of Motion Pictures, Art and Sciences, new Oscar representation and inclusion standard for Best Picture consideration, which was approved on September 8th, 2020, by the way. They're not strictly enforcing these standards until 2024. Adherence to them now is still a priority, right? That's right. It's an honor just to be eligible, and that's um, absolutely. So, and, that, and that is the nice thing about the, the, the run at Lemley's. That is our Oscar-eligible um, run of the film. Excellent. Good. Uh, me and my family will be there. And we won't throw anything at the screen when we hear Nixon's voice. <laughs> Thanks again, Dan. Um, all right. Thank you, Rick. That's it for this episode of Digital Village. You can hear us archived on kpfk.org. And digitalvillage.org. Thanks for listening to Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen. I'm Leigh Manuel Bano. And we'll see you online. online.